Hello, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. My name is Richard Schur, your host. On today's podcast, I speak with Mark Myers. He is the author of Why Jazz Happened. Myers writes for the Wall Street Journal and runs the blog jazzwax.com. His book is a social history of jazz that explores the period from 1942 to 1972, and he explores how music unions, technological change, suburbanization, and the GI Bill, among other things, affect the history of jazz. During the interview, we cover these topics and much more. The heart of this book, I, I thought, was really all these interviews that you do. Um, maybe tell the audience a little bit about some of the people you interviewed, how you selected them, and maybe who are some of your favorites to interview. Um, I think, you know, the artists I interviewed for the book uh, are fairly significant in the history of jazz um, and the history of that period. Um, the um, the favorites, there's no real favorites. I mean, it's not a favorite issue. It's really an articulation issue and the um, analysis issue provided. Um, I think all of them have uh, enormous contribution when it comes to the various periods I'm discussing, the evolution of the period. And I think many of these uh, artists um, um, interestingly think the way they play um, in that they um, tend to um, improvise off of a theme. And when you listen to them, as you interview them, you, you find that they think similarly to the way they create. So is it make it a challenge to interview folks who are improvisers and jazz musicians? No, not at all. It's just interesting. It's just a different way of thinking. When you're interviewing someone, you're listening intently to what they're saying and you're listening to their articulation and how they're phrasing things. So what's fascinating is that a lot of these musicians tend to articulate the same way they play. So if you listen to them on record, uh, the way they make a point is is quite similar. And I think, you know, for, for all of them... Um, they are eyewitnesses and they're participants, so their um, information is highly important. Um, it's Many books are written based on research of paperwork or the reading of secondhand books by people who um, wrote about a particular time that they never really experienced. Uh, but as a journalist, for me, I find that the interviews, you've got to go to the source and you've got to go to people who actually saw and experienced what they're talking about. And I think that that gives um, my book, Why Jazz Happened, uh, a different level of action and intimacy. Yeah, well, let, let's kind of jump straight in to, to some of the, the the events that you talk about that really uh, shape shape what jazz becomes. And one of the one of the things you talk about early on is the American Federation of Musicians ban on recording. Um Explain a little bit about what that was about and how that developed. The ban, uh, the first American Federation of Musicians ban in 1942, <clears throat> primarily prohibited musicians, union musicians, which was pretty much all musicians in the country, uh, from recording. And the Musicians Union uh, puts that prohibition in place. Uh, because by 1942, the, the union is pretty much fed up with how technology is gutting its membership. Um, the Musicians' Union is pretty much at war uh, with technology from about late 1920s on. Um, and technology back then meant um, talkies in the movies. It meant radio. It meant the jukebox. It meant 
phonograph records. Um, what we take for granted today, what we assume today, is just a convenience for us to be able to go to the gym and listen to music or to drive in a car and listen to music. Um, back then, union membership was being decimated because uh, many establishments where live musicians could go and perform and earn a living um, were suddenly turning to technology. They could simply put a radio in or put a jukebox in, and they no longer had to hire musicians, radio stations, um, instead of retaining live music, which is pretty much how you heard music on the radio back in the 1930s. If you heard music, it was played by a live orchestra uh, hired by the radio station. Those radio stations began to winnow down those live musicians, and the numbers uh, of, of musicians that were hired to do that kind of work began to diminish. And the union, by 1942, um, is finding that its membership is shrinking. And uh, the union isn't altruistic. I mean, the union isn't sort of saying to itself, this is really too bad that our membership is, is shrinking. Um, it's operating out of economic necessity um, in that smaller membership means smaller amounts of dues paid. Smaller amounts of dues paid mean less capital for the union. Smaller number of numbers also, uh, a small amount of numbers in the union also means that the union has less leverage in Washington. It, it can't throw its weight around if its membership is small. If the union has um, you know, 100,000 members, that's strong. If the union has 14 members, it's not so powerful. So the union was pretty much operating out of survival, and by banning musicians from recording, um, it basically put a chokehold or a, it hamstrung the recording industry since nothing was recorded um, from 1942 to 1943 until Decca Records decides to throw in the towel and sign the union's agreement. And I know in other areas, um, African-Americans had a hard time getting into unions. Um, did African-Americans or jazz musicians have a hard time getting into the American Federation of Musicians? In many cases, no. The problem is, is that um, the locals, which meant the offices of the unions in various cities, the locals in many cities were divided into, were segregated into black and white locals. So in Los Angeles, up until about 1953, you had a black local of the American Federation of Musicians and a white local. Uh, of course, in many cases, um, the white local wound up uh, with much of the work, much of the best work, especially in Los Angeles, uh, until there was a big pushback on that. So um, you do have segregation among union members, um, but it's um, on a local level. But even that segregation um, hurts black artists' ability to earn simply because of who was receiving much of the work. Well, you mentioned there was this gap in recording in 42 and 43 or, or in that area. How did that gap um, affect what jazz was popular um, once uh, the record labels were able to record again. Well, what happens, you know, what you have to understand is much like the car industry, I guess back in the 90s and 80s, the uh, the American car industry, the um, American recording industry was primarily dominated by just three major record labels. There were a handful of others, but the, the earning possibility of those smaller labels was really boutique. It was like craft beer or something. Um, the major labels that dominated the, the marketplace, 80% of the marketplace, was Columbia, RCA, and DECA. And those labels in 1942, when the union asked the labels, when the union said to the labels, look, if you're going to make records, and those records are going to be used on the radio, 
then the union should have a percentage. They should get a royalty so that the union can hire out-of-work musicians to perform. In other words, creating something of a fund to employ those musicians who are out of work. Um, the labels basically say um, they don't, you know, we're not going to pay anything for that because you guys aren't, those unemployed musicians weren't fired by us. They're not really employees. We don't understand why we have to pay, you know, pay to have them put back to work when they didn't work for us in the first place. Um, but the union's argument was that the technology um, was making it impossible for uh, larger numbers of musicians to earn a living. And when these records were played on the radio, what you, what you found is that the radio stations could play these records over and over again and sell advertising and make a ton of money, but they were making money based on one artist's hour in a studio. So while the artist got paid an hour to record something in the studio, that radio station was making a ton of money by simply playing that one hour's worth of work over and over again. It's as if, it's as if you teach a course, you teach a class, um, but instead of having you come back and paying you to come back, they just took the recording of your, of your lecture and they just kept playing it over and over again, charging tuitions and playing it over and over again for students, but never compensating you for that, for that replay um, of the music. So um, what happens then in 1943, you know, by 1943, RCA and Columbia have radio network resources. They're, they're not in much financial trouble, but DECA is practically bankrupt um, because DECA really was surviving. You know, its main business was the recording industry and the recording of radio transcriptions, which were in effect uh, recordings of live music that were recorded onto disc and then sent around the country, rented out, so to speak, for other radio stations to play them when they wanted to. So DECA was pretty much bankrupt by 1943, on the verge of bankruptcy. DECA decides to throw in the towel and pay that royalty to the union. And when they do in 1943, you see the rise of hundreds of micro-labels because RCA and Columbia are offline, but all these, you know, all these small minor labels are able to spring up and do their recording. Uh, primarily at DECA, DECA studios, which were all over the country. So DECA was able to make money by allowing these small labels to record. It's not until 1944, toward the end of 1944, that RCA and Columbia finally decide to come back online and sign that agreement and um, begin to pay into that that fund the union has set up. Um, and then, you know, once they're back online, you've got these three major labels, but now you've got several hundred smaller labels uh, that have established themselves. Well, to kind of keep up with kind of the role of technology and recording, um, one of the big issues that you talk about is how there's different recording technologies. You've got 78s, you've got 45s, you've got 33s, and how all these uh, really come to effect and a shape uh, what happens with jazz. Can you maybe uh, just talk a little bit about how these different formats come to, to shape what we what we hear as music? Well, those formats that, that you mentioned there, Richard, are, are they come into play at very different times. They, they don't all arrive at once. The 78 is, is basically um, a format that exists since around 1917, a little bit before then, but uh, it's really r- rough, r- right around 19. 
you know, right around before World War One, um, and that 78 RPM, which held about three, a little over three minutes on each side, that was the format in play until 1948. And in 1948, you see the rise of the 33 and a third, <clears throat> which primarily gives um, people at home a longer amount of time to sit on their sofas and listen to the music. People. Once you've got the surge of home ownership after World War II with the rise of suburbia and the GI Bill, um, more homes have phonographs, but more homes, more home owners don't want to constantly keep getting up to turn over records every three minutes. They're looking for a longer play record that will allow them to enjoy the music more, especially classical music, which takes up more more time than the short amount of time used to record popular and jazz music. Um, but what you have is, you know, the, you have the rise of the 10-inch LP for popular music and 12 inches for classical. But by 1949, a year later, RCA decides that it's going to go to war with Columbia over the format, much in the way different formats often go to war, um, whether it's the MP3 versus another type of um, format like Slack. I mean, you didn't have that kind of word, but you certainly had it in video with, um, uh, with you know, you have it to some extent with Blu-ray and, and DVD, but you had it more so with Betamax and VHS back in the 80s. But once RCA decides to release its own format, which was the 45, for the next couple of years, Columbia and RCA are battling over which format's going to dominate. Today, we you know, back, we don't even see these things anymore, but, you know, back in the late 50s and 60s, both formats existed together. You had the 45 and the 70 uh, and the LP, and they were pretty much on the market at the same time. But back in the early days of 1950, 51, 52, Columbia and RCA were battling to see which one would take over. RCA wanted its 45 to take over, and Columbia wanted its it's 33 and a third to remain in force. What you have, though, when you see the rise of the longer playing record is you've got, you, record companies suddenly have more real estate to record longer solos. So the jazz solo um, becomes to be, starts to become um, a prized um, get on 12-inch albums, 10-inch and then 12-inch albums, um, because there's more room. So basically, the the, the recording artist can emulate what they do in nightclubs on recordings. So, so that was one of the questions I had when I was reading this is, you know, I'm a little bit of a Louis Armstrong fan. And if you go back and listen to a lot of Louis Armstrong songs, they're all, like you said, three minutes long or two minutes and 30 minutes. Um, do you have a sense, was, if you would have seen them in a club, how long would some of those songs have gone on for and what kind of solo would he, would he have done? Well, you know, again, I I personally wasn't around back then to right. go to the clubs to experience that in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but you know, one assumes one assumes that they the what was played in the clubs was similar to what was on recordings, simply because that's what their arrangements could do. Um, bands and orchestras and even small groups um, were restricted by the music in front of them. And the music in front of them was often written and created to fit the recording format. But one also has to assume that there were uh, so-called jam sessions or elongated pieces that allowed um, orchestras and bands and artists to go a little further, to um, not be constrained by the length of the, the 78, but to um, improvise and play 
um, what was on what was on their minds um, based on the chord changes. Um, I, I have to say that that the art of improvisation, I'm sure, grew up around this, um, which is that um, many orchestras and bands were restrained to it, to their three and a half minutes because that's how long the song music, the sheet music was. But I have to assume in clubs where the demand and desire was for longer music, and since that music wasn't written out, that many of these artists. Um, began to improvise what we call impro- improvising today um, in an effort to um, uh, extend pieces of music that were perhaps too short for that setting. And I think once they got a wow out of audiences, once audiences were excited and motivated um, by the sound of their um, improvisation um, and the um, skill of their soloing, uh, that once that became a, a, a um, an audience getter, um, that um, more artists and more orchestras um, began to feature soloists because it was something that was exciting for the um, people who were coming to the nightclub and in effect probably started to attract larger audiences, which of course meant that orchestras um, and artists would be held over in these clubs for longer periods of time, which of course meant more more money. So then if I if I move it a little bit forward and is when you get to like the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties with some of the classic John Coltrane records, um that would have been impossible with the 78, right? I mean, he could not have done... You know, no, it would, have been, it would have been possible. You just ha- would have had to have bought 17 or 1878. I mean, you know, uh, we laugh, but, you know, the classical music, the classical music was sold. The, the word album goes back to the 1930s when uh, record labels used to release um, classical symphonies on multiple 78s. And those multiple 78s would be housed in um, accordion, uh, sort of these, these, these things that looked like photo albums, <clears throat> so that when you um, opened them up, they would have sort of an accordion spine, and you'd open it up like a photo book, but instead of photos in there, of course, you had 78s and sleeves, and you'd have to, if you're listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or whatever you were listening to in opera, you'd have to keep turning this stuff over to listen to it. It's not unlike, um, in many ways, Richard, the you know CD box sets today, right? You know, you can't fit all of Bob Dylan on two CDs. Maybe in the future they'll put it, they'll start selling zip drives, or, or you know, today of course everything's downloaded. But um, you know, if you're going to release a box set, you have to release multiple CDs because all of the music won't fit on a small number of CDs. So it's the same thing back then. The album, um, as we know it, was created because it looked like a photo album. So yeah, Coltrane, you'd have to release it on a whole bunch of 78s, but it wouldn't make much sense to do that either because the playing, his style of playing didn't lend itself to the the, the primitive technology that existed back in the 1930s. You needed a different sound, a more distinct and punctual sound, and Coltrane's music, you know, the saxophone playing is more expressive, which, you know, all of that expression could be captured on um, a long-playing record with Dyna grooves and different types of ways to display the to display all the information you were hearing. My guess is if you took Coltrane into a studio and recorded him on 78 technology, um, it, you... It, you would hear some of it. Some of it would sound faint. Um, it, it would not be the same experience. Yeah. Um, well, one of the the, the the really important 
debates that you talk about, or it's not so much of a debate, is but what was going on between ASCAP and BMI. And I think it's really interesting because we tend to think of musicians only making money through like when they record, but how do copyright royalties work, and how did that sort of shape what jazz musicians could and couldn't do uh, during this period in the 40s and 50s? Well, you know, during the rise of um, during the rise of technology in the early part of the ni- early part of the 20th century, <clears throat> it became um, clear to a lot of songwriters who were writing for Broadway um, uh, and uh, you know uh, um, music halls and other types of uh, environments, concert halls where music was being played. Uh, it became clear to a lot of these songwriters that. Um, you can't you can't really protect air, and that's what music really is. It just happens to be air that sounds pretty good, but it's air. It's not something you can, you know, put in plastic or put in a box or wrap up. Um, so what they were finding is that they would write music, and then suddenly somebody would be performing that music and making money, and there would be no money for them, um, even though they owned the copyright to it. And for years, I mean, going way back centuries, uh, when you wrote something, that was protected. So that if you wrote something and someone decided to print it after the Gutenberg Press was invented, you needed to be paid a royalty for that because you owned those words. You created something um, in, 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 in literature, or you created something in text, and the reprinting of that demanded that you be paid a certain amount of money if someone printed it and sold a lot of it. It was to protect you as a writer, but it was also an incentive so that more writers would come forward and write things so that they could have the prospect of getting paid um, when things were popular and would be printed. Um, by 1914 or so, you've got musicians who are, uh, excuse me, songwriters who are um, needing that same type of protection. Um, and while copyrights, you know, there was some copyright protection um, with sheet music in the 19th century, um, there was little copyright protection for somebody performing what you had written. Um, in other words, if you printed off, if you printed off old folks at home on song sheets, then that would be copyrighted because it was printed, but you didn't have protection for, uh, you know, for you if a group went and played old folks at home. So um, what you see during this period of time is um, a need for some kind of an organization to police who's playing what and who's owed what kind of money because it was played. And again, it was really, ASCAP begins in 1914, I believe, and um, it's established to make sure that when something, when, a, when music, copyrighted music is played for profit, that the, music, that the creator, the song writer or writers would get a royalty um, when that music was played. Um, so ASCAP does a very good job of that. You know, they monitor radio and they monitor sheet music and they monitor what they're supposed to monitor to make sure that the royalties they do are, are paid and they take a piece of that and hand it off to the uh, to the songwriter. But by the late 1930s, it turns out that with the rise of jazz, ASCAP's kind of a stuffy, um, um, stuffy organization that really is was set up for 
Tin Pan Alley and Broadway songwriters, songwriters who were making a ton of money, um, the Gershwins and the Cole Porters who were making a lot of money on Broadway, it wasn't set up for blues artists and it wasn't set up for jazz musicians and it wasn't set up for the swing era. Um, and uh, ASCAP, ASCAP, the way ASCAP structured its deals, um, other, other types of musicians could get in, but the, the, the fatter, the bigger, fatter, more popular artists were sort of at a higher tier. <clears throat> They'd get a bigger chunk of the money coming in, <clears throat> and the jazz musician, a blues musician, if they were even admitted, um, would get peanuts because they would be like in a third or fourth tier. Um, so uh, by, by late 1930s, by 1939, um, a, a new organization forms called BMI uh, that's set up basically to allow anybody who joins to share um, to share in the profit based on how often their music was performed. Um, so not, not, not based on status on how, how big you were in the industry, but if your song was paid, played a thousand times, then you should get a thousand times whatever you're owed, not a tier five, you know, piddlance of, of what you're supposed to be paid. Um, so this open system of joining and, and being paid what you're due based on uh, performance of what you've written, um, as Kep and BMI begin to go at it, because with with by the late 1940s and early 1950s, you see the rise of R&B and and rock and roll, and BMI is signing all of those artists who in turn are making a fortune, and ASCAP suddenly finds itself at a deficit. Um, just maybe to to help people understand, what are the names of some of the the uh, early jazz and R&B people that helped uh, went to BMI? Uh, wasn't it like Duke Ellington? Um, some I, I, I just don't know. You know, I'd love to be able to rattle off names for you, but I think you could pretty much, you know, take a look at that by just simply going on to BMI's site or uh, ASCAP's site. I think basically, you know, most of virtually all jazz artists were on BMI and virtually all R&B and rock and roll artists were on BMI, but that's by default. It's just, Pure logic. ASCAP was for the high rollers, for the really established um, musicians, and by default, everyone else who wanted to collect on royalties had to sign up with BMI. Um, one of the assumptions about jazz frequently is is that these jazz musicians are just people who sort of, you know, sort of know music intuitively. And one of the real interesting parts of your book is you talk about the role of the GI Bill and how that really. Uh, affected jazz quite a bit in the ni- late 1940s, early 1950s. I'm sorry, and what, what's your question? Um, how, how did the GI Bill affect jazz uh, at this time? When the GI Bill, when the GI Bill is, uh, is passed by Congress in June of 40 and signed in, by the President in June of 1944, um, it does two primary things for returning veterans. Returning veterans had been a, a a, a frightening prospect for Congress uh, during World War II. Uh, when when, G, when soldiers returned from World War One, there was enormous amount of friction in the economy um, because many of these soldiers who had fought under horrible circumstances—not that World War II was any different—but a lot of these soldiers returned and found their jobs were gone or taken, um, and it created an economic mess um, at first. Um, and the government wanted to avoid that, especially with 15 million troops coming home from the Pacific and Europe. Um, there was a tremendous fear that 
everyone who was working in the in, in the economy at the time, including women, um, that suddenly all these people would be thrown out of work because the GIs needed their jobs back. So to sort of stagger their re-entry into the economy, um, Congress passed the GI Bill, and it did two primary things. On the one hand, it created um, low-interest um, home loans, which allowed soldiers to borrow money, and, you know, with very little, very, very, very low interest rates to pay back um, to buy a home. Um, and secondly, and more important to what we're talking about, um, you had um, the government paying for college education for returning GIs. Now, today that sounds, doesn't sound that big, like that big a deal, but back then, Nobody went to college except wealthy people uh, or extremely gifted, brilliant people. Uh, everyone else went to work right after high school, if you even completed high school. So the prospect that the government would pay for your college education um, was dazzling to most families back then. And when GIs returned, especially musicians, the tens of thousands of musicians who were in World War II, um, performing in a variety of functions from performing to fighting, um, when they return, most of these guys go back and most of these women and go back, they go to college, but they go to college to study music. And studying, studying music at college back in the mid-1940s and late-1940s primarily meant studying formally. You studied modern classical, you studied, you know, you studied tone, composition, you studied all kinds of things related to formal training. Um, so what happens is by the late 1940s, as thousands of musicians graduate from music school, the um, the quality of musician rises. The the demands that arrangers uh, the, the demand for arrangers rises with the rise of television and movies and and other forms. And with the rise of the rising demand of arranging, you needed better musicians, and musicians are are creating jazz classical pieces. So uh, the the GI Bill raises the level of musicianship um, on the part of musicians. Meanwhile, the home loans, inexpensive home loans, mean that suburbias all over the country spring up, especially in Southern California, where the suburbs grow more rapidly than anywhere else. With suburbs come homes, with homes become, come home buyers, and with home buyers comes phonographs. And with phonographs and the long playing record, um, there's just a greater demand now with the LP for more jazz musicians, especially more inventive jazz recordings, meaning these more gifted and more skilled musicians are now writing their own music and arranging their own music. Um, so there's greater possibility for uh, jazz musicians in the early 1950s in different parts of the country. Yeah, and then, um, it also seems like around the same time, we're also seeing jazz kind of getting into the movie industry and sort of soundtracks. Um, what are some of the ways that jazz gets into that, that entertainment industry? Um, you know, by the 1950s, you see the rise of Technicolor uh, in film. Color didn't exist before 1950, uh, really. Um, you see um, uh, television um, moving into homes rapidly in the early 1950s. Um, movies needed music. Television needed live music uh, early on, and in fact still does. If you watch late-night television, you know, you watch... Letterman or Fallon, they're using live music. Um, you know, to some, Ellen, of course, doesn't. You know, there's a DJ in there. But music still plays a big role on television. Um, jazz winds up moving into the movies 
because the sound of jazz is, you know, often it reflects um, it reflects real life. It, it reflects grittiness. It reflects the sound of bank robberies. It reflects the sound of being down and out. It reflects the sound of prison. It reflects um, uh, classical music doesn't do it. Those big symphonic classical um, movie composers and arrangers and orchestrators um, that you hear so often in movies from the 1930s, 1940s, by the 1950s, you, you have a new realism, a new cinema verite, a new film noir movement uh, that's capturing the realism of everyday life. Um, jazz starts to play a role when this music is needed to help illustrate what these movies are showing, and particularly film noir, and particularly um, films where the grittiness of and the hardness uh, of the underbelly of cities needs to be illustrated with music. Classical's not going to do it, but jazz does. And um, it's kind of moving ahead a little bit forward into the, the 1950s and 1960s or into that period. Um, you, you tell some kind of interesting stories about how jazz musicians responded to the Beatles and sort of the growth of rock and roll. Um, maybe you can just talk a little bit uh, today about how did jazz people view the Beatles and, and even maybe some of the early rock and roll stars? Uh, jazz in the 50s does very well, primarily because of the rise of the LP. Um, Miles Davis becomes jazz's first superstar, so to speak, album recording superstar. Um, interestingly, the same year that um, Elvis becomes um, a huge singles uh, 45 RPM recording artist. Um, but throughout the 50s, jazz is, uh, becomes high art in this country. Duke Ellington, <clears throat> Dave Brubeck, it becomes a very sophisticated form of music and it's no longer just, you know, it's no longer just fast, unusual, odd music and it's no longer experimental and it's no longer jazz classical. Um, it actually has a sophistication, um, especially when the State Department starts to send jazz all over the world as ambassadors of democracy. Um, jazz becomes a, a smarter, more sophisticated form that's, that commands a different level of respect. <clears throat> and, and so how did the audience maybe change during this time? Um, did the audiences have different expectations as, as jazz, jazz is becoming more sophisticated? Well, you, you know, the LP is, is, a, is a format that was marketed to adults. If you remember, we were talking about the rise of home ownership and the rise of phonographs. Well, that, that wasn't aimed at kids. It wasn't aimed at teens. Teens basically didn't have a form of music until the rise of the 45, until Columbia and RCA finished with their battle, and RCA realized that the 45 might be a good product for kids and a good product for jukeboxes, and the album went on its merry way, attracting adults with classical music and popular music. Um, but the 45, um, with the rise of the 45 in the, in, in the 1950s and into the 60s, you see that... that um, teens suddenly have a voice that they've got portable phonographs they have these round records with a big hole in it that last for about three or four minutes and um, those singles become the voice of a generation um, but no one expected that that generation would grow as powerful commercially um, as they did and continued to do throughout the 1950s. But by 1964, you know, when the Beatles arrived here in February of 64, um, the youth culture just explodes. They've got more discretionary income. They've got the ability to play this music. Um, they uh, are increasingly making up a larger 
portion of the revenue that record companies are making, um, even though these records are small, um, it's it's a whole lot whole lot more profitable to sell 30 million record 30 million of these little records than maybe a thousand LPs. So the youth market becomes dominant. Um, uh, rock. Uh, pop rock, let's call it pop rock, singles rock, um, in, the, in the early 1960s um, begins to dominate. Um, and a lot of these singles were collected on albums that were sold to kids then um, in the 1960s. And record companies begin to redistribute their um, talent pool. They begin to shift many of the best producers over from the jazz side to the pop rock side. And then when Motown rises, of course, you know, also to the soul side, um, so that the jazz departments are have have are paltry in terms of the talent that used to be over there to produce records, and also the visionaries who are willing to take chances. They were pretty much just putting out jazz records, um, many labels, without much thought to there being an actual marketplace for the music. Um, they were just happy to get a basis um, of what they were trying to achieve, but they didn't really expect massive hits on the scale of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Dave Clark Five. So jazz um, begins to suffer as a result of this shifting at record companies, and they also start to suffer because they, jazz finds that it's having a great deal of difficulty attracting a teen audience, which finds that jazz doesn't have a beat and isn't danceable. So ironically, jazz, which goes from dance music to listen to, to sort of concert or club music, suddenly finds itself at a deficit when it can't produce music that's, that, that you can dance to, which is basically what the youth market wanted. And then how does jazz fit into um, civil, civil rights era history? Um, were, were the jazz artists of this era engaged or were they more just interested in making music and selling music and performing at concerts? Uh, jazz has a huge impact, fundamental impact on the civil rights movement. Um, in fact, it really starts the civil rights movement as we know it by the 1960s. And what I mean by that is um, that um, jazz and R&B, which R&B is at first an offshoot of jazz, uh, but R&B then, of course, you know, becomes, an, you know, rock and roll becomes an offshoot of R&B. Um, but throughout this period, um, you had a teen population um, whose primary form of music was the radio. Uh, and the interesting thing about the radio is you don't know the race or color of the person who's playing the music. You either like it and your friends like it or you don't like it. And uh, what a lot of people were finding in the South, North, West, is that teens would turn on the radio, they'd tune in the music they liked, um, and a lot of that music would turn out to be performed and recorded by black artists. So for a generation of teens, large numbers of teens, you saw that black and white had made much less of a difference than, their, than it did to their parents, who were uh, sort of you know, brought up to see the, that there was a big difference and that one was superior to the other. Uh, but the teen culture embraces R&B and embraces rock and roll. Rock and roll artists don't really don't care at all between black and white. Um, and the start of the civil rights movement that 
there needs to be equality and there needs to be no segregation. There needs to be a sense of integration, that there needs to be a sense of justice and, and um, equality uh, among people in this country. Um, that starts with the music. And jazz artists, um, by mid-1955, um, after Brown versus Board of Education, doesn't seem to do very much. Um, despite the Supreme Court's decision, uh, even though the Supreme Court decides that um, you know you can't bar African Americans from public institutions like buses or, or, or colleges or high schools, um, that you can't have these laws that uh, that prevent them uh, from attending and using these things. Um, that despite these things, localities find loopholes and find ways of intimidation around. Um, the Supreme Court's decision, and a lot of black jazz artists are frustrated, and they express their frustration uh, through their music. And white white artists as well are frustrated uh, by the slow lack of uh, by the slow pace of change. Um, and what you see in this country is that um, the music that you hear recorded in the 1950s, whether it's Sonny Rollins or Miles Davis or John Coltrane, has a political agenda, socio-political agenda built in. You you hear it in the music. You hear it in the in the yearning of the music. You hear it in the energy, and you hear it in the improvisation. That there's a protest. That there's a frustration coming through that music um, over the slow place of change, despite the fact that the Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision. So one of the questions that, that you sometimes see people writing about when it comes to jazz is um, about questions of race. And um, sometimes when people define jazz, they'll define it either in racial terms or ethnic terms, trying to you know uh, trace back the sound or the beats to, to African uh, beats or African practices. Um, what's your take on on sort of how jazz uh, deals with the race question and how race um, race and ethnicity flow through jazz? I'm not quite sure of that question, Richard. It sounds like about three questions pushed <laughs> together. Um, if, you're asking, if you're asking me about the origin of jazz and whether it does trace back to Africa, I think that's, you know, fairly established that, you know, Rhythm played a big role in communication, and beats played a big role in communication in Africa. And when you see slavery in this country, especially in ports like New Orleans, um, that the same tradition is 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 popular or important in these communities. And then, uh, of course, with um, with the rise of recordings and you know rise of everything else that comes together in this country, the way it ordinarily does, um, jazz evolves, and it, it evolves as it moves from city to city, and different experiences are inserted, and uh, jazz continues to evolve over time, primarily because of cultural differences, and also because of um, the demands of the marketplace, and also the opportunities that exist within the technology. So, yes, you know, jazz does evolve, and it does begin primarily with African rhythm. Now, I think you're... you're I'm not sure of your your other questions there. Well, I guess Do you I, want to rephrase. Well, I guess I'll I'll kind of maybe be a touch more direct. I know that there, uh, maybe about five ten years ago, there's a lot of debates around Lincoln Center and sort of how they were approaching jazz and and trying to find figure out which jazz artists um, should be remembered and part of those uh, sort of jazz history. And so it seems like at least recently there's been a lot of questions about how jazz. Um, has handled, or how maybe critics of jazz have handled the questions about race. Um, I don't know if, if you've thought about that or approached that at all. I don't know. I don't. I'm not. Again, I'm not tracking what you're saying. I mean, if I'm if I'm taking that logically, you're saying that that jazz at Lincoln Center 
um, programs that's jazz based on race. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think there were I think there were some debates about that. Um, again, it's probably about five ten years ago that there was some some sense of that either white artists were being left out of that of uh, jazz at Lincoln Center. No, I think, you know, that was never true. Um, And I think, you know, um, I think Jazz at Lincoln Center's mission is to preserve and protect um, jazz, which they view um, as a largely African-American contribution. Uh, I think their thinking was that there are other institutions that preserve um, other types of jazz, whether it's New Orleans jazz or West Coast jazz or other types, but I think Jazz at Lincoln Center's mission has been to preserve the African-American tradition, but that does not mean that white jazz is never featured there, and that doesn't mean that white jazz is excluded from there. That's hardly the case, um, given their programming. Um, but I think I think the bigger question is, what's being done today to, to preserve jazz in general. And I think that's getting increasingly difficult because jazz operates at a deficit, which is that it's not a visual music. That increasingly with the rise of YouTube and the rise of uh, pop, rock, and um, uh, flamboyant uh, concert programming um, at large arenas, that much of what is consumed, what much much of the music that's consumed today live is consumed visually. That one goes to a concert to see Elton John or goes to a concert to see Billy Joel or goes to a concert to see um, any any group you can think of. And I think everyone expects there to be flames. They expect a video. They expect fireworks. They expect um, um, things to be theatrical. Uh, jazz um, has a, has a difficulty today because it's not theatrical. It's very often five people standing on stage still playing instruments. So, you know, the sensibility that was required to appreciate jazz, which was a thoughtfulness and an introspection as the music was being played, um, is more difficult today to attract audiences because audiences increasingly, live audiences want a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and jazz doesn't really provide that same kind of show, or at least not to that extent, so it has a difficulty attracting people to a live venue. Um, well, you also talk about in, about some of the ways that jazz responded to rock and roll with sort of um, with fusion, and um, I guess I'm curious your take about um, how successful some of those experiments were with fusion and and and, and the and the hybrids with rock and roll. I think they were highly successful, uh, and I think Weather Report and Return to Forever and Miles Davis and John McLaughlin, I think all these people still pack arenas based on their fusion chops. I mean, they may not be playing fusion today, but they're known to an audience um, in their 40s and 50s, I would suppose, primarily, maybe 30s as well, um, that distinctly remember these names from fusion groups. So... You know, during its time period from 72 to about, well, I don't know that fusions ever really ended, but its popularity sort of ended in the early 80s, I suppose, um, that for 10 years, fusion was a very big, popular um, form of jazz that attracted larger audiences to um, 
arenas that were, weren't quite as large as the major arenas, but at the same time were larger than theaters and concert halls. Um, you know, like any form of jazz, it's a, it, you know, it's not current today, although a lot of music that you hear today does sound like fusion. Um, but its combination of, of jazz and rock um, was a premeditated attempt to survive, uh, but also to embrace the youth culture. You know, a lot of the jazz rock fusion was really an attempt by jazz musicians to remain current and vital um, with an audience that had grown accustomed to hearing rock guitars and long solos and um, organs and, you know, electric basses, things that, that weren't comfortable or current in jazz at that time. So as the jazz musician becomes fluent in electronic music, um, that form of music becomes more popular with, mm, I think, fans who found rock and roll to be perhaps too simple, um, but at the same time um, were able to uh, use it, use that music to feel, to get a more sophisticated sound. But I have to take for a second. You want to hang on a second? What are you working on right now? Uh, right now I'm writing ferociously for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and I'm covering um, mostly rock legends, and it's been a fascinating journey for me because throughout the 19, late 1960s and 70s, I sort of tuned out from the music of my generation. I found a lot of it at the time. I didn't quite understand it. I wasn't a drug user. Much of it seemed to require that, and many of the people who were listening to it seemed to be fairly stoned, which wasn't my my bag, really. And I moved into jazz, started listening to jazz, which was more inspiring for me. It didn't sound as much like a downer. Uh, but as a result, uh, in, in these years, the last couple of years, I've I've been writing extensively about rock and soul and jazz, but it's been exciting to write for one of the country's best papers on subjects that had always fascinated me, but uh, I never fully explored. So it's terrific to do that. And I'm also working on a book proposal, a new book proposal. I can't really get into what that is at this point, but it's going to be even more exciting than the last one. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening to this podcast of new books and pop music. I've been talking with Mark Myers, the author of Why Jazz Happened. So long for now.